We are continuing our study of the book of Revelation. We saw that John, who was on the Isle of Patmos, uh, on a particular day, the Lord's Day, the Spirit brings John into a state of prophetic vision. John is told to write a book and to send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. This commission is sort of fleshed out in verse number 19. That is, he is told what he is to write. What you have seen, that is the vision of the Son of Man in the midst of the lampstands. What is now the state of the churches, as we see in chapters 2 and 3. And what will take place later, what must soon take place, as we read in verse number 1. It's a reason for this letter to prepare God's people for what is ahead. These letters, this book, are addressed to the seven churches, which are symbolized in two ways. First of all, the seven stars, which are in the right hand of the Son of Man, showing his absolute possession of them. They are his. And the seven golden lampstands, among which Christ stands. And it shows his presence in the midst of the churches. Last week, we looked at the first uh, church that is addressed, that is the church in Ephesus. A church that had stood for doctrinal purity in the face of difficulties. And the Lord says to them, I know your deeds, your hard work that you do not tolerate wicked men. You have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. Uh, you have found them false. And Jesus also says, I know your patience. Um, the King James has it. You have persevered. You have endured hardships for my name. You have not grown weary. But one thing is wrong. As the King James has it, I have somewhat against you. Like NIV has, I hold this against you. And this one thing is so serious that if they do not repent and if they do not correct this one thing, Christ threatens to take the church out of Ephesus, to take the lampstand out of their midst. And what is this serious matter? You have forsaken your first love. And as we saw last week, and not to repeat the whole sermon, but your first love refers to the love that Christians are to have for one another. The noun love only appears twice in the book of Revelation here and in the letter to the church at Thyatira. And there it is in the midst of two pairs, love and faith, service and perseverance. Perseverance demonstrates faith. Service demonstrates love. Someone asked, um, could you say a bit more about what it means to love one's fellow Christian and, and, and why this is such a serious matter and why it is uh, that Christ threatens to take the lampstand out of the midst of the church. So I'll try to flesh this out a bit. I think there are two things to consider. First of all, the love that we are to have for one another as Christians is a really serious matter. And not simply in the negative sense, that is, if, if you don't, you know, if you leave your first love, if you don't repent, if you don't love your fellow Christians, Christ will remove the church from our midst. But also in the positive sense, so I mentioned last week, Jesus told his disciples, of whom John was one, uh, during the Last Supper, 
by this, and you could almost insert by this one thing, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. It is the mark of the Christian. It is this one thing that people will be able to tell that we are God's people. That's the first thing. It is a serious matter. Secondly, I think that the love that we are to have for one another can be and should be expressed in different ways in different circumstances. I don't think there's a, this is the one way we are to show your love. I think there are general principles, but I think in different circumstances, different things come to the forefront. For the church at Ephesus, I find it fascinating that elsewhere in the New Testament, we have words addressed to them in this particular regard. So if you would turn, please, to Ephesians chapter 4. The book of Ephesians chapter 4. And as I mentioned last week, uh, of all of Paul's letters to the various churches, the one to the Ephesians is the only one that does not seek to correct them. That is, there's not some doctrinal problem that needs to be corrected. There is, however, in chapter 4, this call to maturity, so that they will not be tossed by every wind of doctrine, they will stand for what is right. And from what we, we read from John in, uh, in chapter 2 of Revelation, they had done that. But I want you to look, if you would, in Ephesians 4, uh, beginning at verse number 25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we, all, we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, so that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. I think in this passage we find practical expressions of what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 13. And let me just read to you what Paul says. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And if you compare these two passages, there are certain themes, I think, that are reflected. First of all, the idea of speaking the truth. Secondly, of restraining anger. Do not let anger persist. Uh, Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry. Rage, brawling, slander, every kind of malice. There's not to be bitterness. Thirdly, we are to think of others. We are to share with those in need. We are to benefit those who listen. We are not to be rude in our speech. Paul says, do not let unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. We are to be compassionate. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And we are to forgive one another. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, love keeps no record of wrongs. 
We don't keep a record of what we have done in the past. And in this we find the standard, I believe, for all Christians, not simply for the Ephesians. But it does seem that there's one area that Paul focused on when it came to the Ephesians. Back in Ephesians 4, verse number 28, He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. And if you go back to Acts chapter 20, the last time Paul spoke to the Ephesian leaders, the Ephesian elders, he, you know, this was the last time that they would ever see him. It's a very emotional scene. And he sort of recaps and you know, warns them about what is going to come. And he says, You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. And everything I did, I showed that you, by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the, Lord, the words of the Lord Jesus himself, it is more blessed to give than to receive. In other words, Paul said, listen, I worked hard with my hands to help those in need. Because Jesus said it's better to give than to receive. And then in Ephesians, when he writes them, he says, you know, the guys who used to, you know, used to be, you know, steal, use their hands to steal. They need to now start to work with their hands. And, and why is that? So that they can help those who are in need. And so there seems to be, at least with the Ephesian elders, I believe it is for all time. Because John would also write in his first epistle, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and with truth. So, it, yes, this is true for all Christians, but the special emphasis for the Ephesians, they need to help those who are in need. And, and, and I think particularly in terms of material things. The one thing that does strike me as I was trying to, you know, what does it mean to love one another? And, and particularly Paul's passage in Ephesians. And there's one thing that really struck me. And that is, if we are to love one another, it requires that we know one another. And I think if we get to know one another, then there is the real possibility of anger, of disagreements. I mean, I think what Paul writes to the Ephesians, you don't write to people who don't know each other superficially. Because if I don't know you that well, if, if, we, if it's just a superficial, superficial relationship, how can we ever really get mad at each other? And, and I mean, not simply sort of flare up, but an anger that wants to stay till the next day and beyond and fester into bitterness. I think it requires that we know each other somewhat intimately. And it is when God's people come together and get to know each other that there may be difficulties, but it is the love of Christ which is to be demonstrated to one another. I have in my notes that the absence of anger can be good, but it can also be an indicator that the relationship is superficial. Sharing can be good, but it can also be an indicator that the relationship is superficial. I mean, if, if I simply give to you, if you ask and I give, and I don't ask, well, why do you have this need? What, what has happened in your life? What's going on with you? 
Why do you have this need? And it's not to pry, it is so that I can know you and show the love of Christ to you. I think that this is of critical importance. Paul says we are members of one body. We should get to know each other, and I think more than in a superficial way. I hope that answers uh, the question of what it means. It begins to answer the question of what it means to love one another. Go back, if you would, to Revelation chapter 2, and now we come to the church of Smyrna. Uh, It is one of the two churches against which Christ has nothing to say. It is one of the two blameless churches in this passage. And let's read it. Follow along, if you would. Revelation 2, beginning at verse number 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. This letter to the church in Smyrna is marked by paradox. The church in Smyrna, the people, are poor and yet they are rich. Their opponents claim to be Jews but are actually part of the synagogue of Satan. The one who overcomes to the point of death is promised a crown of life and safety from the second death. The promise is given by one who was dead but has yet come to life. Just some background on the town of Smyrna. The city, interestingly enough, was identified with mourning because of its association with the embalming spice myrrh. In fact, the Greek word for myrrh is Smyrna. And we see that word in Matthew chapter 2, at the birth of Jesus, when the wise men bring gifts, and one of the gifts is myrrh. And in his death, in John 19, when he is wrapped with spices, including myrrh. Smyrna was proud of its history, of its faithful loyalty to political and military allies. The most recent being Rome, who... As early as 195 B.C., and if you know anything about ancient history, that's very early. Rome is still not a major power at this point, but Smyrna had allied itself already with Rome at that point. It built the first temple in Asia, Smyrna did, dedicated to Roman power. It was a great trade city. It was 35 miles north of Ephesus. It had a great harbor. And one of the roads that came from one of the valleys of the interior of what we now know as Turkey, Asia Minor ended up in Smyrna. It was a beautiful city. It had actually been destroyed in the 5th century, actually 6th century B.C., and then was rebuilt in the 3rd century. As a result, it was one of the very few cities in the ancient world which was uh, planned. You know, most cities in, in, in most of human history just sort of start as a small settlement and then people sort of build on it and just sort of gets bigger and bigger and bigger. But Smyrna was destroyed, uh, and when it was rebuilt, they said, okay, we want straight streets that are going to run from one end of town to the other, and so you have one of the first planned cities of the ancient world. It had a famous stadium 
as well as a famous library. It had the largest public theater in Asia Minor, something they were very proud of. It was a politically important city. In all the civil wars between the Romans, you know, Caesar and Mark Antony and all that that was going on, Smyrna had always picked the right side. They'd always picked the winner beforehand. And the Romans had not forgotten to be grateful. And so the people of Smyrna had a lot more freedom than other cities did in the Roman Empire. There were two things about Smyrna, though, that made it difficult to be a Christian at the time that John writes this. First of all, Caesar worship. That is the worship of the emperor as divine. Smyrna was the very first place in Asia Minor to worship Caesar as divine. They wanted to show their gratitude to the Romans for what they brought, the Roman peace, Pax Romana. You could travel safely from one end of the empire to the other. The economy was stable. The economy was good in Smyrna. And they wanted voluntarily to show that they appreciated what Caesar had done. And so it was voluntarily, but at some point, we're not quite sure, it became compulsory that every citizen of Smyrna had to go to the image of Caesar, take a pinch of incense, and put it on the fire so that there would be the smoke of the incense, and then they had to say, Caesar is Lord. If you failed to do that, it was political treason. It was considered disloyal to the empire. It wasn't a matter of religion. It was, in our words, it would be un-American. You're being unpatriotic. And of course, Christians could not burn incense and say, Caesar is Lord, because for Christians, Jesus is Lord. The second thing that made it very difficult to be a Christian was the Jewish population in Smyrna. Um, there was a large Jewish community in Smyrna, and they informed on the Christians and sought to obliterate the church. They were very well connected politically and had the ears of the authorities. And so they were able to go to the authorities and sort of inform on the Christians. This led to persecution. The speaker, the one who is speaking to the church in Smyrna, we see in verse number eight. And we saw this last week that at the beginning of each of these sections, Jesus identifies himself in different ways. And we had one of two choices, and we still do, either to think, well, He's trying to break up the monotony so he doesn't say the same thing every time, you know, say something different every time. Or what he, how he chooses to identify himself is significant for that particular church. To the church in Ephesus, him who holds the seven stars in his hand, in his right hand, and walks among the golden lampstands. That is, the possession, the possessiveness of Christ, the church is his, and his communion with the Ephesians. He walks among the lampstands. He doesn't simply stand there, but he walks. To the church of Smyrna, he is identified as the first and the last who died and came to life again. I mention it here, but it will be, I think, only toward the end of the sermon that we will see the significance of this self-identification. Jesus speaks to the church in Smyrna, and he tells them what he knows. He knows about the church in Smyrna. I know your afflictions and your poverty. Afflictions, the King James has the word tribulation. Poverty, uh, destitution. There are at least two words in, in Greek for poverty. One, 
I think we might call the working poor in our society today, those who work for a living, who have income, but are not able to get luxuries. I mean, they, you know, they're able to pay the bills and, and that's about it. The other word for poverty is somebody who has nothing at all. This is the word that is used for the Smyrna Christians. They live in a rich city, a city of trade, but because of persecution, they have become poor. They are rich, Christ tells them, not in the eyes of the world, but in his eyes. They have become poor because of persecution. The suffering of the Christians in Smyrna was a result of physical and economic assault. And we will see more of this as we go along in the book of Revelation, particularly in chapter 13. That those who refuse to take the mark of the beast, that those who refuse to submit to the absolute authority of the empire, will not be allowed to participate in the economic system. They will not be able to buy and sell. And as a result, they will be poor. And Jesus says, I know you. I know what is going on. I know your tribulation and your, your poverty. But he also knows about those who oppose them. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not. As we find in the book of Acts and in Paul's letters, much of his opposition did not come from Gentiles and did not come from the Roman authorities. In fact, uh, in the reading last week, uh, Agrippa said, you know, if... if this, this man doesn't need to go to Caesar. I mean, this man has done nothing wrong. He should be released. Um, it was not the Roman system that persecuted the church. That will change. And that's why the book of Revelation is, is being written. But from the beginning of the church, even in the life of Jesus, the opposition comes from those who are Jews. Ethnically, these people are Jews. But as the Lord Jesus sees it, Although they are descended from Abraham, they are not Abraham's children. They are not God's people. They are not part of the Lord's synagogue, its official title. They are part of Satan's synagogue. See, it's not a matter of how you, you know, what your descendancy is in terms of flesh. Oh, I am a child of Abraham. I am ethnically a Jew. But it is a matter of the spirit. And it is not the circumcision of the flesh but of the spirit that marks God's people. Um, Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans chapter 2, A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. The Gentiles, if you wish, the opposite of the Jews, who were once not a people, and certainly not the people of God, are now being called a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, the people of God. In fact, Paul, or Peter writes this in his first epistle. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We heard this in Revelation chapter 1. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. And as I mentioned when we went through this, this is the language of Exodus chapter 19, verse 6. As Israel stands before Mount Sinai, God is ready to give them the law. 
And he says, although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That is, the titles that used to be given to Israel have now been taken away from them and are now given to those people who are God's people that we now know as the church. The church began in the Jewish community. It began in Palestine, in Israel. It began among the Jews. Jesus was Jewish. The apostles were Jews. But Jesus was put to death by, as a result of persecution from the Jews. And the apostles experienced it as well. Wherever Paul went, he experienced persecution at the hand of the Jews. There's a fascinating passage in John chapter 8. And if you get a chance to read it, I would encourage you to do so. Uh, particularly at the beginning of this section. It begins in verse number 39. And what happens is you have a group of people, a group of Jews, who have believed in Jesus. They have believed him. At the end of the passage, they want to stone him. Okay? So it's not like they were against him all along. No, they believed him. And to those who believed him, this is what Jesus said. You know, um, well, they answered, Abraham is our father. They answered, Jesus says to them, if you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do the things Abraham did. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. You belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. For there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies. I think certainly there is some of that in this particular passage. Where we have those who claim to be Jews, but actually who are a part of the synagogue of Satan. They slander those who are the people of God. Something else. Satan means accuser. Devil means slanderer. We find both titles in our passage here in Revelation chapter 2. They are the accusers against the Christians to the Roman authorities. They are the slanderers against the Christians to the Roman authorities. And therefore there is persecution. If you read through the book of Acts, as Micah and Emily have been doing, We hear time and time again the false witness against the Christian church. In the case of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. Then they, that is the Jews who opposed him, secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. In other words, they lied. They slandered Stephen. In chapter 17 in Thessalonica, Uh, The the Jews raise a riot and we read, but when they could not find them, that is Paul and Silas, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials shouting, these men have caused trouble all over the world. They've come here and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are defying all Caesar's decrees, saying there is another king, one called Jesus. Well, no, they weren't defying all of Caesar's decrees. In chapter 18 in Corinth, 
While Gallio was proconsul in Achaia, the Jews made a united attack against Paul and brought him into court. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. He's a lawbreaker. Not true. In chapter 21, in Jerusalem, when Paul is seized um, at the temple area, they stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, saying, Men of Israel, help us. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple area and defiled this holy place. That was not true. Paul had not brought any Greeks into the temple area. And it's interesting, if you go to chapter 24, when he stands before Felix, they say to Felix, we have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. Well, there were riots, but Paul wasn't the one who started the riots. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple, so we seized him. Well, did he desecrate the temple by bringing in Greeks, or did he just try? I mean, they can't even keep their stories straight. So, it is the story of the early church that the Jewish contingent, wherever they went, would speak against them and would slander them and would lie against them. When he stands before Festus in Acts 25, when Paul appeared, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many serious charges against him, which they could not prove. False accusations. All they can do is slander. They can't tell the truth, and so they must slander. Well, in the face of being slandered, being lied against, Jesus speaks to the church in Smyrna words of instruction and words of comfort. First of all, instruction or information. The church in Smyrna is told that they will suffer. It must have been hard to hear, but on some level they're already suffering. That the devil will put some of them in prison to test them. And that they would suffer persecution for ten days. Something to note, several things to note about being put in prison. The Romans generally did not use imprisonment the way that it is used in our society today. It was not for long-term confinement. It was usually for a a short time. And so when Jesus says, you'll only be there for ten days, that makes perfect sense, because the Romans didn't put people in prison for a long time. So also, we are told that the devil is the one who is going to put them in prison. The devil in his hostility against God, which is what the book of Revelation is about, Christ will be victorious, cannot attack God, and so he attacks God's people, and he puts God's people into prison. But we are told that they will be put in prison to be tested. Well, the devil doesn't test us. God does. And so, indirectly, or if you read between the lines, we are being told here that God is in control. That God is the one who allows Satan to arrest God's people and to put them into prison. Satan wants to destroy them. God wants to test them. They would suffer persecution for ten days, which seems to be a brief time. I don't think it's a literal ten days, by the way. It is reminiscent of what we read in Daniel chapter 1. Daniel and the three Hebrew princes, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, refused to eat meat that had been offered to idols. 
They said, let us eat. We, we, we don't want to drink wine. We'll drink water and we will eat vegetables. We will be vegetarian and we will do this for 10 days. And after 10 days, you tell us if, if we look like we're not, like we're, our health is deteriorated, then we will do what you want. And after 10 days, they were in better shape and had better health than those who'd been eating meat offered to idols. And so the 10 days, I think, here is symbolic of a short period of time, but of, of sort of a time of testing, as it was for Daniel and his three companions. Well, with this information, I think they are in need of comfort. And Jesus speaks to them, Do not be afraid. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you a crown of life. The crown here, by the way, is not a crown that kings wear or that princes wear queens and princesses. It is not a diadem, uh, the word in Greek, uh, diadema, which we get diadem in English. No, it is not a crown of royalty. It is the wreath that they gave to athletes who won contests, those who had successfully completed the test. And Jesus says, if you successfully complete, I will give you the crown of life. And he who has an ear let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So I mentioned last week, we find this in each of the seven sections to the seven churches. It is a personal challenge. I think it speaks to us today, and we should listen. And then there is the promise. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. I mentioned again last week, where Paul would say, he who believes, John says, he who overcomes. It isn't a question of victory. It isn't victory versus defeat. Like, ooh, I won. It is standing with Christ who will be victorious or to be a traitor, to be involved in treason. He who stands with Christ, he who believes in Christ, he who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. And now, and now it begins to come into focus. That's why the time in prison will be short. It is not because they are going to be put in prison for ten days and then released. It is because they are going to be put into prison for ten days or a period of time. And then they're going to be put to death. They're only put in prison while they're trying to decide what to do while the authorities are. And then the authorities decide... And then they will be put to death. And thus there is the call to be faithful even to the point of death. And thus there is the crown of life for those who will lose their lives as a result of martyrdom. And thus there is the promise that he who stands with Christ, yes, they will suffer the first death, but not the second death. That is to be cast into hell. But they will experience the first death. The church in Smyrna would be, in many ways, the first place to experience persecution that led to death. Jesus told his disciples early on in his ministry, all men will hate you because of me. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. You see, the crown of life is not a thumbs up, you made it made it all the way through, the crown of life is salvation itself. 
Who will you stand with? Will you stand with Christ, who is the overcomer? Even though in this particular battle I may lose, I may lose my life? Or for the sake of saving my life, will I go over to the other side and be a traitor? If I do that, then, then I'm not God's child. I am not a child of God. And now we can go back to the beginning of this section, and now we come to see why Jesus identifies himself as who is the first and the last. It's taken from Isaiah, as we've seen earlier, a name for God. It points to God as the supreme Lord and determiner of human history. See, before there was Smyrna, Jesus was there. Long after Smyrna will be gone as a city, Jesus will still be. He will still exist. He's the first and the last. Human history exists in between that. He is the one who is there beyond all time. And he is the one who died and came to life again. There are at least two things, I think, in connection with this. The first is the direct connection. This letter is being written to people who are going to die. They are going to be persecuted, they're going to be lied against, they're going to be put in prison, and then they're going to be put to death. And Jesus says, listen, I died. And I came back to life. And you're going to be put to death. But one day you will be resurrected. I'm the first and the last. Yeah, I died, but I came back to life. And you are going to die as well. But not the second death, only the first death. And then you will be raised from the dead. There's something else, and I think less direct, and that is that Smyrna was known as a city that had died and come back to life. It had been destroyed in 580 B.C. and then rebuilt in the 3rd century B.C., something they were very proud of. Yeah, we were dead, but we came back to life. Yeah, but they died again. Smyrna is no longer there, just the ruins. Jesus says, I died, I came back to life. And we can say by extension, and I will live forever, the first and the last. I think these words may not mean nearly as much to us as it did to the, to the Christians in Smyrna. To those who heard through John the words of Jesus himself, in essence, you're going to die. You're going to be persecuted. But I will give you a crown of life. And the Christians in Smyrna would be a preview of the host of martyrs that would result as, as a consequence of Nero's persecution and persecutions that would follow after that. Those who would be put to death for the testimony of Jesus and the word of God. Let me just give you some things to consider and to meditate on in the days to come. These people in Smyrna there are brothers and sisters in Christ. And they were faithful even to the point of death. And I think that we should give thanks for their faithfulness and for their example. We sang the hymn earlier, Faith of Our Fathers. 
you know, those who gave their lives for the faith. I think we should be grateful for their example and for their faithfulness. And have a sense of a bond with them. They are our brothers and sisters. And then, don't you hate it when people lie about you? Don't you hate it when people distort the gospel or lie about the gospel? Um, we're not the first persons to experience this, by the way. The church in Smyrna did and the apostles before them, but supremely we find it in the life of Jesus. When his enemies, faced with perfection, could only come up with lies, could only come up with slander. So the question might come up, how should we respond to this? How should we respond to slander when people lie against us when they lie against the gospel? Let me take it from a different angle. How should we not respond? What is the wrong way to respond? First of all, I think it is wrong to be surprised. I think for some reason we are always amazed when people lie about us. And not simply as, as people, but as Christians. Oh, they're Christians, they do this. And you're thinking, no, we don't. Or when people lie about the gospel and say, well, you know, in the Bible it says this. And uh, you can say, well, no, actually I've read the Bible and it doesn't say that. We should not be surprised when people slander and lie against us. We should not strike back in anger. I think this is the natural response. In the same way, if someone comes up and smacks you on the side of the face, you, I mean, it's just an instinct that you want to slap them back. I mean, and when people lie against us, I think we want to respond in anger. And we should not. Peter wrote, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. And now listen to what else he says. So that those who speak maliciously against your behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. See, Peter wasn't speaking about witnessing or sharing as people talk about it today. He was talking about when people go and say, hey, you say you're a Christian. What a ridiculous faith. That's why you believe such a thing. And, and Peter says... We are to answer them with gentleness and respect. We are to have a clear conscience so that all they can do against us is lie, is slander us and speak that which is malicious. So don't be surprised. Don't be angry. But in our culture, don't play the victim card. It's, it's become so common in, in our society today that, that people want to play the victim card. And there are even Christian leaders who have embraced this as the new strategy for the church. You know, we were the moral majority back in the late 70s and 80s, and then there's sort of a backlash. And because of this backlash, oh, we're victims. No. Don't play the victim card. I think it is wrong. I think it is foolish. I think it is dishonoring. People slander us. People may lie against us in the gospel 
Ultimately, they are trying to attack God. And Jesus said, people will hate you because of me. So why would we call ourselves victims? We are God's people. And people may lie against us, and it's hard. I hate it. But even worse than that, I hate it when people distort the gospel. I feel like going up to some, you know, get my finger out and sort of peck at them and say, have you ever read the Bible? Have you read the Bible all the way through? Why are you saying those ridiculous things? I've read the Bible. I've studied the Bible. And what you're saying is absolute nonsense. No, don't be angry. First of all, don't be surprised. I think that's, that's where we usually get into trouble because we're like, whoa, where'd that come from? Well, it's always there, okay? Don't be surprised. Don't be angry. And then don't whine. You know, don't be a victim. Oh, it's so hard to be a Christian. People are always lying about us and slandering us. Yeah, that's the way it is. And how dishonoring is it to our brothers and sisters in Smyrna who gave their lives for the gospel? And what we do is whine and play the victim card. It is dishonoring to them. It is dishonoring to Christ. We should not be surprised. We should answer with gentleness and respect if given the opportunity and not strike out in anger. We should stand firm to the end and then receive the crown of life. Let's pray together. Father, there are few things in life more frustrating than being lied against or lied about. To be slandered when people lie and slander knowing that they're telling lies and slandering. But we shouldn't be surprised by this. They did this to Jesus. One who was perfect. There's plenty of things that people can say truthfully about me that I've done wrong. I don't have to resort to lies. But if they lied about Jesus, we shouldn't be surprised if it happens in our lives. When people distort the truth, they lie against the gospel. I thank you for our brothers and sisters in Smyrna who suffered economic hardship because they would not say Caesar is Lord. Who were slandered by the Jewish community, put in prison, and ultimately put to death but remain faithful. May we follow them as they followed Jesus. May we, by your grace, stand firm to the end. May we remember not to be surprised by lies and distortion, and not to be angry, but to answer with gentleness and respect. And above all, not to whine about it, feel sorry for ourselves. But to understand that as your people, this will happen to us. I thank you for this time we could spend together in worship and ask that your grace and spirit would go with us as we leave this place. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand please as we sing the doxology together?
May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.